Good morning again and welcome to those who may have uh, come in after the greeting time this morning. Uh, we are the South Baton Rouge Presbyterian Church and my name is Scott and I'm one of the pastors here. This summer we're doing a, a brief uh, truncated series on the book of Psalms. Obviously we won't be able to fit all of them in or even most of them in, but uh, we are having a, a good look at it this summer. Last week we looked at the very first Psalm, which is part of really a two... Uh, part two psalm introduction to the whole collection of psalms. The first psalm tells us how we are to go about living in this world as the people of God and in particular points to our great need uh, to decide and keep deciding every day who we will and who we will not listen to and how the most sensible choice there is God who sees the farthest and who knows the best. We further saw how God has made it easy for us to listen to him by giving us his word, which if we dive into it and we delight in it, will help us to know him better and will produce good fruit in our lives. Now, if the first psalm sets a trajectory for us, showing us how we should live before God, the second psalm assures us of God's power to rule and reign And it shows us how he exercises that power through the agency of his anointed one, using the language of the psalm, this person who is, as we'll see, both a king and a son. And he'll defeat forever all the enemies of God, which includes the enemies of those that take refuge in his anointed son. That's where we'll be spending our time this morning before we take a a little more uh, closer look at at all that. Let me ask you to please pray with me. Please pray. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you please come and help us now as we find ourselves before this very ancient psalm which you have given to us and through which you speak to us and guide us and reveal yourself to us and us to ourselves and by which you shape us and make us by the application of truth to be more like your son. So help us to be encouraged now in those places where we should be encouraged and rebuked in those places where that would be an appropriate response as well. Please do whatever you think is best, Father. We know you will, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turning our attention to Psalm 2, You should know that it divides evenly into four parts, with each part consisting of three verses. Let's listen now to the first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. As the psalm begins, the writer asks a question. He's asking why the nations of the world rebel against the Lord and against this other figure described as his anointed, which we'll get to in a moment. But he asks why they're doing this. Not so much because he doesn't actually know what their motivation is, but because he is puzzled that they do it. As if to say, why would they, or indeed, why would anyone 
even attempt such a crazy thing as taking on the Lord and his anointed. Are they serious? I remember uh, one time seeing a video where this tiny, tiny little dog was uh, running around and barking and growling and yipping and yapping and generally just harassing this enormous dog that was the size of a small pony. And it was the most preposterous thing in the world, to be sure. You know, the little dog had some spunk. He was quite ferocious and fearless and bold and a dozen other things. But he also seemed foolish. As it seemed very clear to me that this monstrous dog, if he chose to, could swallow this tiny little one whole. I mean, one bite and it'd be all over with. And as I watched this scene play out, I thought to myself, that little dog's nuts. Uh, He clearly has no idea who he's dealing with or what sort of danger he's in. Why is he doing this? I think the psalmist here has a similar sort of feeling as he thinks about the nations and the peoples of the world and how they plot against and rage against the Lord and his anointed one. He looks at them and he wonders why they would bother, why would they even attempt such foolish behavior? Now it seems fairly clear from the comments that are made uh, in those first three verses that the thing that is driving these opponents of God, or at least one thing that's driving them, is that they feel that their relationship with the Lord is restrictive, or to have a relationship with the Lord would be restrictive. It would be some kind of uh, bondage. And you see it there in verse 3 where it says, "Let us." these nations are speaking and they're saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away, cast away their cords from us. They see the Lord as being oppressive, as being limiting, as someone who's trying to tie them down to kind of hold them back in some way. And they, they want nothing to do with that. Because they operate under the foolish notion that unbounded freedom is the path to happiness and autonomy is the way to fulfillment. And so they rage and they rebel against the Lord's rightful rule and reign, but they do so foolishly because they're wrong in their assumptions and because, after all, it's the Lord of Lords. This is the God of the universe they're dealing with, which leads to the next section of the psalm. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In this next part of the psalm, we see God's response to the rebellion of the nations. His response, as depicted poetically here, is twofold. Firstly, the psalmist talks about how God looks down upon these crazy attempts to overthrow him, and he laughs. He laughs at the preposterousness of it all. He holds those who do this sort of thing in derision, the passage says. Now, some people might be uncomfortable with the thought of God laughing or mocking or scorning or showing scorn as if such things would be beneath him. But you have to remember a couple things. For one thing, if God is who he says he is, then any attempt at rebelling against him really is worthy of scorn. It is objectively ridiculous. 
As boys used to say, James Montgomery Boyce, at the end of the day, all sin, all rebellion, when you think about it, is a form of insanity. So that's one thing to keep in mind. But additionally, you have to remember that, that uh, this, this is poetic language. It's deliberately and self-consciously picturesque. And it's employed as a means of underlining with memorable imagery just how crazy it is to attempt to rebel against the Lord. And so the psalmist paints this picture of scorn and derision, which then becomes wrath as God responds to the sheer audacity and the arrogance and the severe disrespect that these actions convey. And then in the wake of what uh, of that we see there in verse 6, the second uh, response God makes to the rejection of him and all of these attempts at overthrowing him. He says, I have set my king. I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, in, in, in saying that, we should notice that the psalmist is giving us a further clue as to the identity of this somewhat ambiguous figure described in verse 3 as God's anointed because he refers to the same person now in verse 6 as a king. So God's anointed is a king. And this reference makes sense because, after all, anointing was something that typically happened with kings. When they were being set apart, oil was poured out on their heads and they were uniquely distinguished in that way. They were consecrated, set apart for a particular purpose and a special role. Now we're going to say more about that in a moment, but the thing to see here also is that in response to the nation's boast that they're going to overthrow the Lord and His anointed, God says, in essence, not going to happen. It's not going to happen. My king, my anointed, is set. He's established, fixed, rooted, dug in, installed on Zion, which is symbolic of God's city, Jerusalem. In other words, God's response to these threats of rebellion and overthrow is to say that it's a fool's errand. Because, firstly, because his anointed, through whom he exercises his rule, is fixed and immovable. And secondly, he doesn't doesn't say this, but the implication is that God's fixed rule and reign is not only an unchangeable fact, it's a necessity. It's a necessity. Somebody sent me not that long ago a a picture. uh, It's this great picture of this uh, little boy on this street. And... uh, And he's at the top of this crazy, impossibly steep road, this hill. And and, uh, he's standing there, and the road just kind of goes almost straight down for like several hundred yards. And then it goes on to this pier that just goes out into the ocean, right into the water. And uh, this seven-year-old, I'm guessing like a seven-year-old boy standing there. He's got one foot on a skateboard and one on the ground. And he's thinking that this is going to be a great idea to go down this hill. And the caption at the top of the picture says, Why Boys Need Parents. (laughs) In response to the nation's assertions that they'll overthrow this rule and reign of God, he says to them, in essence, it's not going to happen. One, because it can't. His anointed king is immovably fixed on his throne. And secondly, people need God's rule and reign. Because without it, Their end is self-destruction. Now at this point in the psalm, there's a change in voice. The nations in their arrogance have spouted off. God has responded to the rebellious thoughts and words of the nations. And now God's anointed one, this king, which we'll say still more about in a moment. But this king also chimes in. He has something else to say 
on top of what has already been said, he says this, I will tell of the decree, meaning the decree, the words that God gave to him. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So along with everything that the Lord has already said, his anointed, this king, uh, shares and describes some things that the Lord has spoken specifically to him, including offers that the Lord has made to him to to give him the nations, uh, including promises that the earth would be his possession, including even prophetic statements about things that will come to pass at some point in the future. You shall break these nations with a rod of iron. Right? So the effect of his sharing this information then is to expand on what the Lord has just said about setting his king on his holy hill, Zion. And so, again, in response to these nations' assertions of what they think they will do, the Lord says, I've installed my king already in Zion. And then this king himself chimes in and he says, in effect, that's right. That's exactly what he's done. And let me tell you what he said to me. He called me his son. He said he was offering the nations to me. Then he said that their rebellious plans will be crushed by me. And so the words of this anointed king are helpful and revealing because they give us further detail about this intriguing figure. Namely, they tell us that in addition to being an anointed king, he's also regarded as a son of God. Further along with that, we learn that not only will these nations not succeed in their planned overthrow of the rule of God, the very opposite will happen. They will become the inheritance and the possession of this anointed son who's also a king. In other words, he will not be broken by them. They will be broken by him. Like a piece of pottery dashed against the rocks. Which leads us to the last section of this psalm. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You know, the psalmist at the end, uh, and in light of all that's been said, he addresses directly these rulers and nations who would conspire against the Lord. The reality of impending judgment for those who rebel in this way leads him to make a final appeal to these kings and those whom they represent to be warned and be wise. He's saying to them, instead of rising up against the Lord, he calls them to humble themselves before the Lord, to serve the Lord with fear, that is, with respect and with awe, uh, not arrogance. Further, instead of rejecting this anointed one, this son who is partnered and paired with the Lord, the psalmist says, kiss the son. Don't curse him. Kiss him. Bow the knee. Recognize his rule, his kingship, his authority. For those that will do this, they will be spared from his wrath. And they'll find a refuge in him. As one commentator has noted, that is the only place to find refuge in him. Because once his wrath is kindled, there will be no refuge from him. No place to run. And there will be no place to hide. Now one question that remains among many I know, but after thinking about all these things, is this. It's the question of who is this psalm talking about? 
What is the identity of this figure that appears here, this anointed king and son, who's not only within the psalm, he's also its author. So who is this person? I think there are two answers to that question. The first answer to that question is to say that this is David, King David, the second king of Israel after Saul's disastrous inaugural run as monarch. Now why do I say that? I mean, after all, there really is no no explicit mention of David as the author at the beginning of this psalm, as you find in other psalms. That's certainly true. But I believe there are two reasons we can say with confidence that, that this is David. For one thing, while there's no direct statement of authorship in the title to this psalm, there is a very clear indirect statement of David's authorship in Acts 4, verse 25. When they, that is Peter and John, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they, they, their friends, heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain, etc.? So the author of Acts, which is Luke, quotes from Psalm 2, and in so doing, he attributes the authorship to David. That's one reason for concluding the author is him, and we don't really actually need any further proof. But there is another reason for concluding this, another passage to look at, which is helpful to see, because it highlights other things that assist us in our understanding and application of this psalm. This other passage is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This passage, uh, In this passage, God is speaking... To Nathan, a prophet that he's about to send to speak to David. And um, so listen to what uh, is said here. Hear the echoes of this uh, in Psalm 2. Now, therefore, thus you, this is God speaking to Nathan, you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the names of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when you read a passage like that, you can hear the echoes of that passage all over Psalm 2. So when David put this psalm together, he wasn't on some kind of ego trip, talking about himself in these grandiose ways in order to make a name for himself. He wasn't doing that. He was simply echoing what God had said to him first through the prophet Nathan. And so in these remarkable words to David, God makes an incredible promise to him. And commits himself to him. He says he's going to make him a prince among his people. He's going to deal with David's enemies. And make his name great. And all these things are an echo and expansion of God's earlier covenant with Abraham. And Isaac and Jacob and Moses. And so David's clearly been set apart and blessed by God to serve as his anointed king and servant. But David isn't the only one in view here. 
The promises made to David are real, and he experienced them in real time, absolutely. But there was a now and not yet aspect to them. He experienced and received them in token and in part, but the greater, final, eternal, complete fulfillment of them would not come in David's time. The prophecy he was given says as much, doesn't it? When it references David's own death, his lying down with his fathers. And so the prophecy that undergirds this psalm that David wrote certainly has David in view, but it has at least another Davidic king in view. David's son, who's not named in the prophecy, but it's Solomon, who's described as David's offspring who would build God's house, which was the temple. David had wanted to build the temple, but God forbade him to do it. And instead, reserved that privilege and that responsibility for David's son Solomon. So David and Solomon are are both in view in this prophecy found in 2 Samuel. But there is yet another descendant of David, another Davidic king in view here. There simply has to be. Because the language of this prophecy is too absolute, too sweeping for for it to have applied to the persons of David and Solomon. The prophecy talks about God establishing the kingdom of one of David's offspring, but it does so in terms that are quite astonishing. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Further, it looks forward to a time when God's people would be established in a place that was all theirs, a place that, that, where they could remain and where they would be disturbed no more. They would never again be unsettled or troubled. Even further, the prophecy mentions a time when violent men would no longer afflict them and when when God would give them permanent rest from their enemies. And specifically ties that to the rule and reign of a Davidic descendant to whom God would be a father and he would be God's son. So language such as this has in view a person and a time and a situation that went way beyond what was seen in David's life and times, or even in Solomon's. To be sure, there are some aspects of that prophecy that were realized in that day, but there were many other aspects of Nathan's prophecy that weren't even close to being fulfilled in the lifetimes of David and Solomon. And so at the risk of being redundant, let me say again that when David, with this prophecy in the background, composed Psalm 2, he certainly saw himself, and rightly so, as fitting the description in some respects of this anointed king whom the Lord had chosen to bless and establish. And yet David knew that the fullness of God's promises to him would not be fully realized in him or through him. He knew that from the very words of the prophecy itself, and he knew that from his own understanding of the history of God's people, David would have been quite aware of this pattern of God's working and of how much of what was promised to Abraham so many years before would not come to pass for quite some time in in years way past Abraham. Some things were fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime. He saw them. But other things would not be fulfilled for 400 plus years. God told him that explicitly. And then there were aspects that had not yet been fulfilled in David's day, and there are aspects that still have not been fulfilled in our own day. And even you look at the structure of the first, this first book of Psalms, or the first, actually the first three books of Psalms, which is Psalms 1 through 89, if you just look at the layout and the structure of that, you see this tension 
between promise and fulfillment played out in David's own life and words. Psalm 2 paints this idealistic picture of God ruling and reigning through his anointed king and son, subduing all his enemies and blessing all who take refuge in him. But then, I mean, the ink is still wet on that, so to speak, and you go to the next psalm, and the next almost 90 psalms, after this idealistic picture, the next 90 psalms contain lament after lament. As the psalmist, typically David himself, keeps asking God, How long, O Lord? How long? As in, how long will it be before you will make good on and fulfill these promises? How long will it be before those who oppose you and rage against you are actually put down? How long will it be before this idealistic picture painted in Psalm 2 becomes a fulfilled reality? The how long question keeps coming up in Psalm 6, 13, 35, 74, 79, and 89. So David sees and experiences the tension between God's promise and fulfillment. He sees it all around him. And he sees it in himself as he falls short and he knows it. And the same thing happens with his son Solomon, who starts well but falters along the way. And then Solomon dies, and shortly afterward the kingdom is divided. And then not long after that, the northern kingdom is carried off into exile, followed by a southern kingdom carried off into exile. In short, the nation of Israel is completely decimated. Talk about a crisis. I mean, what happens to the promises now? How can you have an eternal kingdom and a descendant of David sitting forever on the throne in a country that no longer exists? That has no national identity, that has been completely swallowed up and scattered. And yet in spite of all this, completely undaunted, in the midst of all these things, the prophets keep waiting and looking and trusting Even with the people of Israel in exile, the prophets keep pointing God's people to repentance and faith and to the promises and to their fulfillment. You may remember these familiar words from Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. It's crucial language there. A son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. Here's the key. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You hear the echo of 2 Samuel 7 in there, can't you? And especially in that language of a peace that will never end and how this coming child, this son, will sit on the throne of David. Jeremiah 33, 14-16, Ezekiel 37, 22-24 maintains similar hopes and expectations. It makes similar explicit connections to David and his descendants. God's people, through the prophets, kept looking and waiting Who would this person be and and when would this descendant of David come? How long, O Lord, to quote David's own words. And then he came and his name, of course, was Jesus. 
which is the second and really ultimate answer to the question regarding the identity of this anointed king and son in Psalm 2. And this association of Psalm 2 with the person of Jesus seems to be very clearly the settled opinion of the New Testament. The very first verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1, 1, the opening words of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Luke 1, 30-33, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, key phrase, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Acts 4, 23-31, we saw this part of this passage earlier, but Luke quotes from Psalm 2 in that passage. And he clearly sees the coming together of Herod and Pontius Pilate and some Gentiles and Jewish authorities and the people of Israel. He sees, in general, all of that as an illustration of the nations raging and coming together to rebel and overthrow the Lord. In other words, Luke sees Psalm 2 being acted out and fulfilled in the story of Jesus. He quotes again from Psalm 2 in Acts 13, 32 to 33, making a similar connection. Hebrews 1, 5, the writer of Hebrews, seeking to show the superiority of Jesus to all things, quotes from Psalm 2, applies it to Jesus. Again, clearly, the New Testament writers saw Jesus in both his first and second comings as the ultimate offspring of David, through whom all the promises made to the forefathers and echoed in places like Psalm 2, would be finally and completely fulfilled. Our time's gone, so very quickly, let me highlight just a few implications I think we can glean from this passage of Scripture. For starters, we can learn something here, I think, from the manner of God's response to these threats of rebellion and to the expressed desire of the enemies of God to be free from Him. And to cast off his rule and reign in their lives. God's response to them showed the preposterousness of even thinking that one might somehow overthrow God's rule and reign. And it was a reminder to them that his rule and reign continues in and through his anointed king and son. Who cannot be moved and what's more should not be moved for our own sakes. And his pattern should inform our own. We too need to show people the foolishness of rejecting the rightful rule and reign of God through His Son, Jesus. Foolish because, for one thing, God simply, by definition, cannot be overthrown. But also foolish because He should not be overthrown. Right? Everybody needs a king. Everybody needs a king. People wrongly think that happiness means freedom from all restraint and having absolute autonomy, throwing off all cords and bonds, to use the language of the psalm. But that is expressly not the path to freedom, but rather bondage. True freedom is found not apart from him, but actually in him and by delighting in his law, as Psalm 1 says, not freeing ourselves from it. His commands are not burdensome. They're freeing. They're not harsh. They're loving. 
Running from his law makes as much sense as the kite saying to the string whose restraining influence is the only thing keeping it in the air. I have no more need of you. Be gone with your suffocating restrictions. And so cuts the cord and soon spirals and crashes to the earth. The author of its own demise. The thing you think is holding you back is actually the thing that allows you to fly. A second thing this psalm tells us is that there's a day coming when all the enemies of God, all the opponents of His rule and reign will be vanquished. All opposition to God will one day cease. All the books will be balanced. Every injustice, every travesty, these things that eat and tear away at our soul will be addressed. In other words, the judgment of God is real. And it's coming. But alongside the very real judgment of God is the very real invitation of God. It's the other side of the same coin. David talks about the authority that God has given to his anointed king to break the enemies of God with a rod of iron. And then in the very next breath, he says, Therefore, because all these things are true and judgment is real, be wise, be warned, and serve the Lord with fear. Our knowledge of the reality of coming judgment is not an occasion for the display of arrogance. It's not an occasion for delighting in the demise of others. It is the catalyst for turning to those who are in a perilous position before God, as we once were, and pleading with them to take refuge in Him now, because there will be no refuge from Him when He comes in glory and judgment. We should be moved with compassion to bring the invitation of God to them to respond while they yet can. And to humble themselves before Him and fear Him and His Son, Jesus Christ. There's no withstanding Him. You cannot beat Him, but you can join Him. And finally, this psalm, seen within the context of the rest of the psalms and over against the backdrop of the history of God's people, But this psalm also tells us where we can and must place our hopes. David was God's anointed king, but he was also God's failed king. We can't put our hopes in David. Solomon was God's anointed king, and he was also a tragic king. We can't put our hopes in him. The tension seen in them and in the subsequent history of Israel, the tension between promise and fulfillment is palpable, and it's real. The agonized cry of Psalm 89, how long, O Lord, is a cry we understand. The momentum of the Psalms carries us forward and causes us to continue looking and searching and waiting for the King, the Son, the King, the offspring of David, Jesus, who is the only one who will completely fulfill every promise that God has ever made. His death and resurrection defeated the last and greatest enemy, which is death. And when he returns, he will finish the restoration of all things that he inaugurated. But he is our hope. Jesus is our hope, not human kings, not institutions, not political leaders or governments or even types of government. Not political parties or elections or outcomes of elections. Jesus is. God's anointed King and Son, He is our hope. If we look to anyone or anything else, they will be crushed beneath a weight they cannot bear and were not made to bear. 
Our hopes are simply too big. Our griefs are too deep. And our longings are too great to be borne by anyone other than Christ himself. Let's pray. Father, please help us as we navigate our days with this tension of hope and longing, with this confidence, and with this question, when, how long, why. Father, help us to keep looking to Jesus, to keep putting our hope and trust in him to believe your promises, to wait patiently for the Lord who does hear our cry. Father, we thank you that we are yours. Help us to live in the light of that. Help us to speak in the confidence of that. Father, use us to draw other people to that same hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll now take up an offering, a collection for those that want to support the work of this church. If you're visiting here, we don't ask or expect you to give. Um, This is for those that that know what this is about and, and want to support the ministries of this church and a number of ministries through this church.